Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we read verses 17 through 21. Hear now the word of God. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do that. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, today, especially, I pray for your help. I am talking about things from your word that may feel difficult or uncomfortable for me to raise. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help me to speak faithfully from your word, such that it is irrelevant who the messenger is, but that instead it is your word that is speaking to your people. Would you speak to us faithfully from your text, protect us from the imaginations of men, even my own imaginations. We need your spirit to make it so. Would you help us today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the major themes of First Timothy that I think you have probably seen by now because it's come up repeatedly in the text is the weighty responsibilities that an elder carries. Uh, he has a responsibility to care for the flock of God. He has a responsibility to labor in the word and make sure that God is speaking to his church. Uh, he has a responsibility to deal with the wolves as well as the sheep in the congregation. And so because of that, there are important requirements that Paul mentions for someone to be an elder in the church, and we've seen those over the, over the past few months. I think since January, we've looked at those texts. But what we have here today is a series of three imperatives, and each of them are intended by Paul to highlight that not only do elders have a responsibility to the flock, but that there are responsibilities that go the other way as well. Just as the pastor has a calling and a responsibility, so also churches have responsibilities toward pastors. And so today the responsibilities are here, they're, they're in the text, they're, they're very straightforward. First, the text gives us the responsibility to provide for the pastors. Second, the responsibility to protect the pastors. And then third, the responsibility to correct the pastors. And so let's look at those responsibilities this morning. You see it right here uh, immediately. Uh, first, Paul says, provide for your pastors in verses 17 and 18. I've told this story before to some of you. It won't be new, I don't think. Uh, but when I was in seminary, I had an excruciating experience preaching on the, on the circuit. You know, I've come to you with stories about going on the preaching circuit before. Almost every time that I ever preached anywhere... It was something that was set up by the school. There was a coordinator at the school, and they would hear from a church who needed someone to preach, and then they would contact a student like me, and then I would go and I would preach. 
and the school would communicate everything. The school would make sure they understood uh, what remuneration should be given, how it should be done, uh, what kind of things they needed to communicate to the person who's preaching. They did everything. Well, I had a friend who wasn't on the preaching circuit. He was a pastor. He was looking for somebody to fill in at one specific Sunday at his church. And he said, Adam, would you come to my, my church and preach? I said, yes, of course. And I was honored, and I, I went, and I met with the people, and it was a wonderful experience. I, I loved meeting the people and just seeing this congregation that my friend had been ministering to. Well, when the sermon was over, I had greeted everyone. I was in the, in the receiving line in Mississippi. We have a receiving line here. I just stand outside and catch any of you that I can as you're going out the door. In Mississippi, you know, everybody like gets into a line and they kind of fall, file out. And, uh, and so I was in the line and I was receiving folks. And in the middle of the line were two of the elders from the church. And um, usually when it comes to giving remuneration on the circuit, usually somebody will just surreptitiously slip an envelope into your hand and shake your hand and thank you for coming. Or sometimes if they really think about it, they just leave it up on the pulpit and no one ever says anything. And it's great. No one has to think about it. And that didn't happen here. Instead, you know, as I'm greeting people, the elders just come up and say, how much are we supposed to pay you? <laughs> and I... You know, I, I know I turned weird colors. I don't even think I turned red. I turned opposite colors. Uh, and so I thought, well, it's time for me to step away from the receiving line and come talk to these gentlemen. And so I told them what I customarily was paid on the circuit. And as soon as I told them, they said, oh, we, we can't do that. No, no, no. And, and then it, got, it just felt weirder, right? Uh, very awkward, very, very, very painful uh, for everyone. I'm sure it was weird for them. They just, the answers just came out, you know. And uh, eventually, you know, they, they worked out what they could and uh, gave me something, and I, I drove home. But as I was driving home, I, usually I would turn on music or a podcast or something as I drove, but instead I just rode home in silence, at least for the first hour. It was like a three-hour drive. And as I was driving home, I thought to myself, wow, I was very shaken up. I was very shaken up by the experience because it really wasn't about the money. It was about something going on in my own heart. And I had to reckon with the question, you know, why did I come out here today? Uh, why had I come to this church in the first place? You know, I told myself that I was going to this church t to preach and, and I told myself that, that when I came to preach that I, it wasn't about the money. The money's incidental. The money doesn't matter. The money is not why I came. I came here because I want to open and explain the word of God. And it was almost like God put me in this very awkward position and basically forced the question by saying, but what if I didn't pay you? Would you still do it? Would you still serve? Would you still do it with gladness? Um, and the reality was I had pressures in the other side of my life. This was the way that I paid the bills each week while I was in seminary. My family had, uh, had bills, and every penny that I made preaching on the circuit was earmarked for some specific bill that needed to be paid. Uh, but this, this episode forced me to reckon with something that Paul talks about today, something that we probably feel weird addressing, right? This, this issue of churches... Uh, that namely churches don't just depend on pastors, but pastors depend upon churches. So there's a mutual, there's a mutual interplay 
in Paul's mind, right? The minister provides something, and in so doing, he is serving the church, and he's serving God. And the church gives to the Lord, and in so doing, they provide for the pastor so that he can keep doing what he does. So it's interesting. Both of them are actually not doing this for one another. They're actually doing it for the Lord, and in, and in so doing, they're able to, God is actually providing for each of them in his own way. Isn't that interesting? Right? The church, when, when you put money in the offering, you're giving money to God, not me, if I could just be really direct. And, and then when I preach on Sunday, uh, I, I'm serving the Lord. And so we're both serving God. We're both meant and intended by God to do something for the Lord. And in so doing, God intends for it actually to help both of us. And so neither of these realities is, is something that Paul even seems embarrassed about. Paul doesn't seem mortified to, to, do, to deal with this or to talk about it. I mean, we do, or maybe it's just me. I, I am. <laughs> but listen to how Paul talks. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul actually could speak with his own authority. He's an apostle. He doesn't have to go to scripture, and, and yet he does. He's, he runs to reinforce that this is not a Pauline invention. Uh, that this is not something innovative that he's introducing here. Uh, the imperative here is that churches should provide for their teaching elders so they can continue to do the work. He uses this phrase, double honor. While, while Paul himself was, was a tent maker, Paul paid his own way. It's one of the things he writes about in his letters. He wants churches to know what motivates him. Paul is somebody who gets frequently attacked he is frequently subjected to scrutiny. One of the things that could certainly happen in his apostolic ministry is for people to say, you are doing this for money. You're doing this to be provided for. You're doing this as sort of a moneymaker. You're going around the world. You're getting rich off of people. And Paul makes this decision intentionally in his ministry that he won't take a dime from people. Instead, what he's doing is he's going to provide for himself by the work of tent making. Um, but ordinarily, he does not expect other pastors to follow this pattern. Uh, ordinarily, the task of the church is to make sure the teaching elder can keep laboring in the word, uh, and ideally not as a tent maker, as Paul was. Um, Paul bases his argument for paying pastors on two texts of scripture. The first one he goes to is Deuteronomy 25.4. He quotes it directly. I'll still read it again. Deuteronomy 25.4 says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. You could imagine the cruelty of having an ox. His job is to tread out the grain. And what do they do? They put a muzzle on his mouth so that he can't eat and he can't drink. And so all he is is he's just walking, looking at the food and wondering when he gets to eat, right? That's the picture that they give to you here. Um, and it's interesting the way that Paul uses this, this Old Testament passage, right? Because this is a passage that is not about providing for uh, pastors or or even in the Old Testament context for priests, this is actually, a, it's a livestock conversation, right? This is how do you take care of your livestock? And yet Paul makes this argument, and he makes this an argument from this lower creature. In this case, it's an ox. This creature who's really, his sole value is in being able to pull heavy things. That's what he does. And it's almost like Paul says, look, if we're supposed to care for this lower creature like an ox, 
and make sure that it's able to eat while it's working, he says, how much more should we do this for a minister? So his argument is an argument from the lesser to the greater, right? Hopefully you think your pastor is more important than an ox. Like, I hope so. Please. Um, oxes are great. I think they're, they're great. I love seeing them at the petting zoo when I go. Um, but, you know, Paul assumes it. Paul assumes that a human being made in God's image is more important than an ox. So he, he goes from one to the next. And so the second text that Paul goes to is very interesting because you remember how he says it. He says, for the scripture says, he quotes from Deuteronomy, and then I'm not actually asking you what the text is, but do you know what the next text comes from? In your own head, do you know where this text that he calls scripture actually is. What is he quoting here when he says the laborer deserves his wages? He's not quoting from an Old Testament book. He's quoting from the gospel of Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So he's, call, he's calling the gospel of Luke scripture. Quotes it directly. He's reminding the, 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 the reader that Jesus said the laborer deserves his wages. So in that verse... You have to think really how, how early this passage is. The indication here is that the Gospel of Luke is written very early if it's written within probably 15 years of the writing of, of this book. So that's just remarkable. I think that's just noteworthy if you're a nerd anyway and you care about numbers and dates. Um, it shows that the Gospels are already in circulation very early on. But Jesus is telling his followers that when they go to someone's home, if, if that person gives them food or if that person gives them a drink, Jesus is telling them it's okay for them to eat. It's okay for them to drink. It's okay for that person to give them provision. And the reason is because he says the laborer deserves his wages. So he doesn't just appeal to the Old Testament. And it's not like, well, in the New Testament time, the standards are different. The standards are higher. You got to work for nothing. You got to go and don't expect anything, don't receive anything, don't get anything. It's actually very different. In, in, in fact, the idea, the point here is even somebody who works in the church deserves to be paid so that he can continue to work. And he quotes Jesus himself so that we can know that. Churches do not always honor this. Um, sometimes it's because they just can't, right? There are some churches where the finances aren't in place. There are financial limitations. Sometimes, though, churches intentionally refuse to pay pastors what they can. Some churches intentionally pay them little. And by the way, the reason I can talk about this, and I've said this before in the past, is because you provide for me and my family. So um, uh, there's a phrase called subtweeting. Subtweeting is when you're talking about somebody and you're not talking to them. It's very passive aggressive. I'm not subtweeting you here uh, when I say this. There are churches, though, where they, they intentionally withhold from the pastor. And uh, I'm, I have known pastors who have been in this exact position. I remember one pastor telling me his church told him that they intentionally pay him little and when I said, why do they do that? And he said, because they told me it keeps me humble. And, you know, isn't that the Holy Spirit's job? But if you know anybody, by the way, in your life who's, who thinks their role in your life is to keep you humble, you should run from that person. <laughs> I carry myself around me all the, with me all the time. He's always badgering and keeping me humble. 
Um, but it's not, our, it's not the church's role to be the Holy Spirit and, and to keep a, a, church, a minister humble. It's a very strange way to show honor to someone. And in fact, Paul says, actually, he says it dishonors him. It doesn't honor the, the man, it dishonors him. It's a very curious way to, to show a man that you want him to be able to serve for a long time. I think Paul, Paul wants these teaching elders to be able to continue to serve, and that's, that's why he says what he does, because he's thinking in the long term. Paul knows that he, he himself is not keeping these churches alive, and he knows that someone has to be serving, and they have to, to be in it for the long haul, for the long run. And that's what he's got here. He's got a long-term perspective on these people serving. And he says, look, you're going to burn through. I think if I could put words in Paul's mouth, very dangerous. You're going to burn through servants of the church if, if you don't take care of them. It's really the first imperative that he gives. He says, provide for your pastor, verse 17 and 18. And the second imperative Paul addresses is the command to protect your pastor, uh, protect your pastor. Look what he says in verse 19. It's so brief, but there's so much here. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I have to say, this isn't just about pastors. I think this is really speaking of all elders. I think it's a, a reference to all ruling elders. But one thing that I, I have noticed, and you learn it over time, is that the pastorate is this strangely vulnerable thing in many ways. Because Pastors do very public-facing work. Uh, they're out there. They, they serve in a way that exposes them to extra scrutiny. And, and, and also, sometimes what a pastor does is he says things that might put them on people's bad sides. People don't always like what the Word of God says. And when a pastor is being faithful, people are going to feel stung by the Scripture. Um, sometimes pastors have to address issues in their churches or uh, in other churches even that are, that are serious pain points. Um, when you consider that sometimes churchgoers can be prone to being hypercritical, you could imagine why Paul would need to say what he says here. Um, by the way, when he says don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, he's not creating a special standard. He's not creating a higher standard He's not saying, well, look, uh, your average person can be charged with sin on the evidence of one person, but your pastor, it's got to be two or three. Uh, that's not what he's doing. Paul is actually just taking the ordinary scriptural standards like you find in Deuteronomy 19.15. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, no one shall be convicted of sin based on only one witness. So all Paul is doing here is he's saying that's also the case in the church don't be stricter with an elder than you would be with any other Christian. Um, Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18. That there need to be more than one witness. So, so Paul is saying, just like everyone gets due process, just like everyone gets equal treatment, so should pastors, so should elders. Just because their position is important doesn't mean that, therefore, you get to be higher in your scrutinizing. He says, treat them fairly. He says, treat them justly. Don't scrutinize them with a tighter standard than you give to everyone else. Now, God himself is going to judge pastors and elders more strictly. The Bible says that, but not the church. When it, when it comes to the church itself, pastors should get the same protections of due process, the need for evidence and witnesses, the same rules that apply to everyone else. Just because someone says something bad about the pastor doesn't mean it's necessarily true. And again, I say this is true of all elders. Just because someone says something bad about any member of the church 
doesn't mean it's necessarily true. It needs to be proven by evidence just like with everybody else. I think Paul, I think if I had to guess, I would, I would say that Paul is concerned that pastors not be torn down and dispirited and burned out. I mean, think of the first point, right? The first point is make sure you're taking care of this person. And the second point is, is basically don't, uh, don't put such a tight microscope on his life that he's discouraged and torn down by abuse by the congregation. Our, um, this broader issue, actually, of, of I'm going to call it pastor abuse. I'm stealing that from my friend Nick Batzig. Um, is something that actually is, is worth thinking about just for a moment. And again, uh, can I just say it again? I'm not subtweeting here. Um, this, is, this is just something that I think churches in general need to know um, it's a mistake that's sometimes made. Some church members um, think that it's their duty to police the pastor in a way that they wouldn't with other church members. So I remember, story time, I, I remember one of my, my pastor friends, a good friend of mine who's no longer at this church, um, and he told me, he said, congregants would drive by the church building in the morning, and they expected to see his car there, and if his car wasn't there when they drove by, that they would call him sometimes 6.30 in the morning um, because they expected him to keep farmer hours. And so they wanted him at the church from sunup to sundown. And if his car wasn't there, they assumed he wasn't working and they assumed he wasn't doing anything. Uh, I can tell you that guy was itching to get out. <laughs> he, uh, they believed he was negligent and they told him so just because his car wasn't at the church building. Um, some church members seem to always be ready for, to be a critical eye with critical comments. Um, sometimes church members can badger the pastor until he does what, he, what they want the way that they want. Um, and so here's what happens. Instead of receiving the word, some churches criticize the word. Uh, I knew another pastor who was very distressed. Um, by the way, next week I'm going to a pastor's conference in Mississippi it's going to be three days. I'm just looking forward to being with some other pastor friends and being able to spend time with them. And I have to confess, sometimes stories get exchanged at these get-togethers. Uh, not that any of us have any stories. Um, but I, but one, of, one of these men told me he was very distressed because he said, he said, this congregation doesn't sit under the word, they sit over the word. They don't sit under the word, they sit over the word. And he said, every time that they hear me preach... They hear something that could be said differently or said better, and they criticize and they pick apart the word. And, and he, was, he was distressed because the congregation seemed incapable of being ministered to by God because they had such a critical heart attitude. And by criticizing the word preached, this man at least believed that it was allowing them to avoid being confronted and corrected by Scripture. If, we, if I can be critical enough and sort of lean in and look at the, the preaching of the word in such a way that it doesn't penetrate my own heart, I can avoid being spoken to. And instead, I can think of the flaws in how it should have been spoken differently. Um, and it was almost like the, this is a very intelligent congregation. And it's almost like the smarter someone is, the more tools they might have to avoid being spoken to by the Lord, which is interesting. We don't think of it that way, but it can be a danger. Sometimes church members will threaten, raise their voices, 
They'll intentionally make life miserable and difficult for pastors. Um, I mentioned my friend Nick Batzik. I, I think I'm going to see him this next week. Uh, he calls this pastor abuse, and uh, I'll give you some examples. Now, I have to confess, this takes us outside of the text, but at the same time, I think it's still an application of protecting your pastors. You be the judge. Um, first, he says, pastor abuse may involve implicit or explicit disrespect for church officers. Uh, you know, I've seen firsthand churches, they have little regard for the pastors or the elders or the deacons, and as a result, they'll unceasingly criticize and always find fault. Um, second, he says it, it may include making demands of the pastor of the way you, things you, that you want to, things to be done in the church. So this is different from giving feedback. Uh, this is different from giving input or asking questions about why things are done a certain way. I think it's really, I love actually that uh, what I'll hear oftentimes is questions about the sermon. Why did you choose not to address this? Uh, when we talked about widows, I, I think I got five emails from people asking me follow-up questions related to uh, the message, and I love that everybody was still thinking about the text by the time the middle of the week is coming around. Um, so that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Uh, you know, opinions and desires are, are not the problem. Even questions aren't the problem. Demands and ultimatums are. Right? It isn't unusual for people to blame the pastor for perceived deficiencies in the church and even threaten to leave if their demands aren't met. Uh, as Nick puts it, he says, if we find ourselves giving pastors ultimatums about what we want to see in the church, we may be engaging in pastor abuse. Uh, third, he mentions the, that pastor abuse may occur when congregants complain about the pastor's salary or vacations or circumstantial privileges. can't happen. Um, fourth, he says it can happen if discontented congregants stir up others to share in their complaints. Um, this feels so natural to do. It feels so natural to wonder if you're the only one who thinks something should be done differently. And so you maybe go to another person and then you find out that you're not the only one who thinks something should be done. And before you know it, you have a group. They're not carrying pitchforks, but they could be. Um, and, it's, and it's worth remembering that Presbyterian churches are, are elder-led. They're not congregational. And so if someone has an idea, they should come to the session with it, but they should not take it to the congregation. Um, this is an incredible source of bitterness in many churches and a disturbance to the purity and peace of the church. I think in the minds of, of congregants, it is just totally innocent to talk to another person and ask them if they would like something to be done differently and uh, But it disturbs the peace of the church, and especially if there's a rather large group that wants something, and then the session doesn't do it, because all those congregants know how many of them there were, and then you have this huge opportunity for bitterness and trouble and dissension, and at that point, you don't have one or two people who've been told no. You have a whole cohort that's stirred up one another, and they really believe the more they talk to one another, the more they really believe something should be done. And then you have a real source of trouble. Um, the book of Hebrews warns about these sort of situations. He says, uh, it says, Be careful that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, for by it many have become defiled. I think that's a helpful word for us. Now, again, I, I mention these things not because I, I've experienced them here. I'm not uh, I'm using that word again, subtweeting anybody. I mention these things because we, we should always remember that the ways that we might be tempted to think 
We might be tempted to think that pastors are invincible. Maybe I sound confident to you guys up here, and so you think, well, he can take the heat. Um, maybe they, he can absorb endless complaints. Well, that isn't necessarily true, and Paul, Paul knows that it's not. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. The congregation of a church has a duty to do its part to protect the pastor and the elders so they can keep serving. And we'll see this in the next point. That doesn't necessarily mean not accountability for sin, if a pastor sins. But it says that, it, that he should be protected from unwarranted assaults on his person and his character or his family. So the reason for this, I think, is, is obvious, right? A pastor under assault inevitably represents a church under assault. I, ideally, there would not be discontent in the church. That's the hope. But if there is, then at the least, the pastor himself shouldn't be the focus of people's discontent. Uh, this is one of the things we're going to do the second, uh, second part of our new members class this afternoon. Yeah, I guess it is going to be afternoon when we do it. And we're going to be talking about Presbyterian Church government, which I love, and I have no idea how thrilled it makes you guys feel to talk about Presbyterianism and church polity. Uh, but I think there is something precious about the idea of a session, because in a church, in a Presbyterian church, the pastor is just another elder. He's just another one of the elders. And so the pastor, you know, the session is not supposed to rubber stamp what a pastor wants or, or what he likes or prefers. The pastor is not a dictator. He's not an autocrat. And so issues in the church are properly handled by the elders. And so that means that hopefully, ideally, the focus of discontent is not on the pastor, but instead it's almost absorbed more broadly by the session. So, like, for example, let's say that you want X, Y, or Z done at, at Evergreen. Uh, even if you sit down with me and totally convince me that what you want is a great idea, there are still half a dozen other men that are on the session who are part of those decisions, right? They don't rubber stamp what the pastor wants. And also, sessions tend not to share the difficulties in their conversations when there's disagreement. Uh, and that's because we, uh, we want to operate as a single unit. Um, we want to be Presbyterians. Um, that's the biblical model. The biblical model is that the pastor is just one of the elders. Now, this section is called Protect Your Pastors, and, and that's part of the role of the session. Part of the role of the session, I'm going to talk about this tonight when I give the charge to the congregation at Westminster. Part of the, of the job of the, of the session is to make sure that they absorb and handle criticism so the pastor can keep ministering effectively, right? If a, if a pastor finds himself under heavy assault and criticism, it could be a sign of a session that's not fulfilling its own responsibility. Protecting the pastor is also part of the role of the church, though. And that means a commitment from the church to treat them well. This is why Paul includes it in these broader responsibilities of the church. Just like you're intended to provide for the pastor, you're also supposed to protect your pastor from unjust accusations. Now, third, there's one further imperative Paul gives, which is correct your pastors. Correct your pastors. Look at verse 28 and 21 again. He says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Uh, before we go, let me, let me say one word about the previous point about protecting the pastor. It's very important that you do not hear the last point as if Paul is saying that pastors are shielded from accountability. 
as if pastors are supposed to be above God's law in any sense. That is not the case. It's certainly not what Paul envisions in the least bit. Uh, We know, we know, especially the more the internet exists, the more we find out about things that actually have been done in churches. We know there have been churches that did shield their ministers from accountability. And when they shielded them from accountability, eventually it came out. The Bible says also there's nothing concealed that will not be unveiled one day. And what happened? It brought shame. It brought disrepute on the gospel. So this is not what Paul is teaching. A text like this should never be used as an excuse for a church to do something like that. He's not saying pastors shouldn't answer for their sins or answer for their errors. It's not saying churches should ever cover up sin when it's known. In fact, verses 20 and 21 are are really telling us the opposite. Because Paul is saying that there are times when pastors need to be confronted. There are times when pastors should be confronted. But Paul is concerned that it must be done in the right way. And he's very concerned that it be done fairly and that it be done righteously. So what's the righteous way? What's the right way? Well, under the assumption that the pastor in in question is determined to be guilty of what he's accused of, there's there's meant to be correction. There's meant to be correction here. The, The key here is this statement. He says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand and in fear. Now, It appears that the rest, that's the phrase that Paul uses here, the rest that's being spoken of here is other elders. So Paul is saying that if they have sinned, they should be corrected and rebuked by the elders and in a way that's not only private but public because their position and influence is public. In the Presbyterian tradition, teaching elders are not members of the local church We are members of our own church, which is the Presbytery. It might seem kind of strange to you, kind of counterintuitive to you, that I'm not a member of Evergreen, but I'm not a member of Evergreen. Uh, My family is, but I'm a member of the Presbytery, and so I'm accountable to the Presbytery, which is the elders in this region. Um, For those of you who might not be familiar with that terminology, Presbytery just means elders. It's just a Greek word, presbuteroi, that means that we just change into the English word Presbytery. And it's just the elders in our area. So a teaching elder like me, for me, the presbytery is the body to which I'm a part, I'm a member, and which I'm accountable to, and which I answer to. So if an accusation is brought against the pastor of a church, the accusation is handled by the presbytery. Now, it doesn't have to come to that. Uh, Correction can take place immediately in the local context. I would argue mostly it does. Almost always it does. Um, It's not always necessary to involve the presbytery. After all, not everything has to escalate to that point. Um, Not every relationship, difficulty, or sin that takes place in the church needs to even be reported to the session, right? You read Matthew chapter 18, and what you see is is this idea of when somebody sins, you sort of, you escalate slowly, and you pray as you're going that the person will respond when they're confronted with their sin. Um, and so this is true of church members uh, as well, right? If you have somebody in the church that you've sinned against and that person confronts you and says, look, you've sinned against me, what does Matthew 18 say? Matthew 18 says, repent. Just repent when that person comes to you. 
And then it says, though, that if the person won't repent and the person resists, then go and get another person and go with another witness. And you see, as Jesus is talking in Matthew 18, and eventually we'll get back to Matthew, and we'll spend more time in Matthew 18, but you see with Jesus, what Jesus is saying is, if, you, if sin can be dealt with between the two people who know about it, then that is the best, because he says, then the sin can be handled and repentance can take place and he says you've won your brother uh, but sometimes it's important to move it along because sometimes people aren't always soft-hearted about sin sometimes people are not tender-hearted about sin um, so the biblical process though is supposed to be followed for all believers and, G- and all Paul is really doing is suggesting that this needs to take place as well so you speak to the person who has sinned against you and if the and if the person is willing to repent then you've won your brother and that's the ideal and i would say the vast majority of issues that people have personally can be dealt with this way jesus says If you confront and the person confesses, you've won your brother. But Paul seems to be talking about those situations where that doesn't happen, where there's something perhaps public that's been done or where it's so serious that just saying, I'm sorry, it won't happen again, doesn't cut it. Where it really is necessary to involve the session, it's it's necessary to involve the presbytery. And sadly, sometimes that is the case. Uh, Ultimately, it's the other elders Actually, ultimately, it's God, but through the elders that holds this person accountable to deal with the guilt of his sin and is then rebuked by the presbytery. I've seen this done before. Uh, An elder in my last presbytery committed gross immorality and was publicly pronounced guilty before the presbytery based on testimony of, of multiple eyewitnesses. He was called upon to repent. In this case, he was not willing to repent. He subsequently abandoned the faith. It's a very sad story. But he was rebuked in the presence of all, like Paul talks about here, which is precisely what Paul is calling for. I've been in other presbytery meetings where the elder confessed to serious sin and even repented and was corrected and rebuked by the presbytery. And, and in this case, at least the one I'm thinking of, the sin was alarming enough that even though he repented, he also willingly stepped away from the work of ministry without the presbytery forcing him to. Um, it's always a weighty thing. It's never something to be done lightly. And I think that's why Paul sets such standards here. He makes sure that we understand that, that this is a serious, weighty thing. It needs to be done in the fairness that God's word gives to us. Every time I've ever witnessed a public rebuke of an elder, I think, I think of my own sin. And I think of my own weaknesses of my own heart. And I always think, oh, God, you are the one who protects me from this. You, you never respond with pride and think, oh, I haven't done that. I haven't even thought of doing that. Perhaps in your worst moments, you do think that. But the right way to respond is with humility and sadness and sorrow that we live in a world where even church leaders commit sin. You pray and you ask God, confess any pride in your own heart. I want you to keep one more thing in mind. Paul gives this solemn charge in verse 21. We need to feel the weight of what he says in verse 21 because he's talking about heavy things. He's talking about a heavy responsibility for the church, right? Provide, protect, and correct. 
He says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Paul is talking about everything we've addressed here this morning, the importance of providing for the pastor, the importance of protecting your pastor, of not being, bringing flippant accusations. And then finally, the importance of to take real provable accusations of sin seriously by correcting when it's needed. All of these are so important that Paul gives the charge to the church. And what does he do? He calls on God. He calls upon Christ. He even calls upon the angels of heaven as witnesses. This is heavy stuff that he's talking about. He is not just flying off the handle, giving light personal advice. This is not an advice call and Paul is running here. He is talking about something before God. How often do we think Jesus is here? Jesus is watching. Jesus is present among us. He's present among us, not just after the call to worship, but before the benediction, right? <laughs> He's present here among us before the call to worship, when we're all interacting with each other, when we're talking to each other throughout the week. He's present among us. And he's present with us after the benediction too, when we're talking to each other, when we're interacting with each other, when we're trying to encourage each other. He's also present among us when we sin against each other. He's there for all of it and he sees everything. And what does he do? He watches us intently. He isn't just observing. His spirit is here with us now. And by God's grace, you know what Jesus did? He loved that church so much. He bought us with his own blood. And he loves us. And he is a witness and he sees. Are we prepared to listen to God and how we protect the purity and peace of the church? You know, here's what he's done. He has given us these imperatives in how we can love the church of Jesus. Will we obey them as seriously as Paul calls us to? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for Evergreen, for the love that they have shown to me as their pastor, for the, for the honor that I know that they show to me and to the session. I thank you for the kindness that you show to us as your church. But I pray, pray for churches more broadly, especially in our own area and in our denomination as a whole, oh God, that you would protect the holiness of pastors, that you would help for them to be living out what they preach so that they would serve faithfully, so that they're protected from sin. Protect the purity and peace of the church, Lord. And yet when that purity is disturbed, when that peace is disturbed, would you help churches to love the words of scripture enough to follow through on your directives, that your, that your very name and your very church would be protected as you know how to protect it. Would your word reign in our homes, in our hearts, and in your body at large? We ask it in Jesus' name.